Well, at the ripe old age of 82, John Newton, the man that we're all familiar, we sang his, one of his hymns today, but we're probably most familiar with him because he wrote Amazing Grace. This is what he said about himself. As an old man at 82 years of age, he said, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Of course, Newton knew this from experience, but first and foremost, he knew this because he knew his Bible well. The Word of God teaches us those two very great realities, that we are great sinners, and yet Christ is a great Savior. Well, I want to turn your attention to just one of those places that teach us this in this afternoon service, and that place is Titus 2.14. Titus 2.14, so if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Titus 2.14. Here the Apostle Paul tells us that we have a glorious Savior who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Well, from this verse, I want us to see two things this afternoon. First what Christ did for us, and then secondly, why Christ did this for us. So what He did and why He did it. But before we begin, let's pray and ask God to send His blessing upon this time. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Word of God, for the clarity of it, the sufficiency of it, the power of it. But Lord, we need Your Spirit now to open up our eyes, enlighten our minds, Enlarge our hearts, bend our wills to what the Word of God says here. And certainly I need the Spirit of God for my mouth to be properly open to proclaim your praises. So please, Holy Spirit, come. Bless the preaching and the hearing of the Word of God to our edification and to your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So what Christ did for us and why He did it. So first, what Christ did for us from Titus 2.14. Um, if you look at verse 14, it starts off with the little word who. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, who is the who in verse 14? Well, Paul is very explicit about who that who is. If you just look at verse 13, it tells us that the who is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's our great God, which is one of those explicit places in the New Testament that tell us that Jesus Christ is God. Amen. He's the great God. He's not a false God. He's not like the idols of this world, but He's the great God. He's the true and living God. He has, as the Nicene Creed says, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. So He's a great God. But He's also the powerful Savior. He's our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the long-promised Messiah. He's the Christ. He's promised all throughout the Old Testament, long for by the Old Testament saints. And He was born of the Virgin Mary, and given that great name Jesus, because He would save His people from their sins. So He's the great God, and He's this powerful Savior. He is the subject of verse 14. 
So I think in verse 14, Paul expands on what it means for Jesus Christ to be our Savior here. He tells us exactly how Jesus Christ saved us. So let's look at what Christ actually did here. Paul says in this verse that Christ gave Himself. He gave Himself. Now this is speaking about His death. Paul means Christ laid down His life, or Christ sacrificed Himself, or Christ died. Now Christ didn't give away His time, or His money, or His possessions, but He gave away the ultimate gift, which was His very own precious life. Right? More than anything else you could give away in the world, He gave away His life. Now it's interesting to note here that Paul doesn't say that Jesus had His life taken away from Him. He doesn't say who was taken or who was killed. Instead, He says that Jesus gave Himself. In other words, this is something that Jesus voluntarily did. It's certainly true that Jesus was betrayed and delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Gentiles, and He was crucified by them and put to death by them. It's true that He was delivered up for our transgressions, as Paul says in Romans chapter 4. But we must be very clear about this. Jesus was not forced against His will to lay down His own life. He's the great God in human flesh. And as the great God in human flesh, He had complete control over what would happen to Him. He had the authority to lay down His life and to take it up again. He had the privilege to call upon His Father to send a whole army of angel warriors at any time to rescue Him from all of His enemies. Remember what He told Pilate. He looked at Him straight in the face and He said that you have no authority to arrest Him and to put Him to death. Right? That authority was given to Him by the Heavenly Father. And of course, Jesus was the one on the cross who committed His human spirit up to God. He gave up the ghost. It wasn't taken away from Him. So, we learn from this that Jesus gave Himself out of pure mercy and grace and love. His life was not snatched away from Him as some impotent victim dying upon a cross. He gave His life. He was in control of His life. He gave it away. He died a voluntary death. He willingly went to Golgotha. He was willingly nailed to the cross. He willingly gave up the ghost by His own power. He died of His own accord. And that's what this little phrase, who gave Himself up, teaches us. So this is what He did. But secondly, notice who Christ did this for. Paul says He gave Himself for us. Christ didn't lay down His life for some general cause or to make some general statement to the world. He gave up His life. He laid down His life for a particular group of people. Paul says, for us. He died for us. I think a more precise way to translate this prepositional phrase is, He died on our behalf, or in our place, or in our stead, or for our sake. Now Christ didn't just die simply for our benefit. He died as our representative. So it's more precise to say, on our behalf or for our sake, He died in our place as our substitute. He died instead of us. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. So He died for us. He didn't even die for every single person living on planet earth. This is a particular group of people. The extent and, and scope of His atoning death is limited. Limited to a certain group of people for us. It was on behalf of us or on behalf of those who would believe in Him. The Bible tells us He gave Himself for His sheep, for His friends, for His church, for those the Father had given Him, for those He entered into heaven for, for those He appears in the presence of God for, and for those He intercedes for. So he died this sin-bearing death as a sacrifice and substitute for his own people, for us. But why did Christ do all this? Why did he lay down his life voluntarily for his people, for his church? I think Paul gives us two purposes why Christ died on our behalf. He uses a common Greek clause here called a henna clause, or you could say it's a purpose clause. So Paul's telling us there are two distinct purposes why Christ laid down His life for us here in Titus 2.14. Now, they're purposes, but we should also see them as results that every believer in Jesus Christ experiences. Because if our Lord and Savior has a distinct purpose in mind for dying for us on the cross, we should be assured that that purpose is actually worked out in the life of every single person who puts their trust in Him. Mm-hmm. Right? Christ is not going to fail on the cross to, to give us what He has intended to give us. So the reasons He dies for us turn into results which happen to us. So these are purposes, but these are also results that happen to every believer in Jesus Christ. So what are those two purposes or those two results of Christ's self-giving on the cross. Well, the first one is this. He gave Himself to redeem us. Paul states that the first reason Christ died for us was to redeem us from all lawlessness. In other words, the death of Christ frees us from our sins. I want us just to consider this purpose under three questions. The first is this. What does it mean to redeem someone? We're used to hearing that word redeem all the time, but what does it exactly mean? Well, the Greek word redeem has to do with paying a price to release a person from slavery. You could translate it as to ransom, to liberate, to set free. Right? The picture is somebody's in jail or somebody's held captive, and a price is paid to free that person from that captivity or that bondage or that prison. Now, when we hear this word redeem, we should immediately be thinking in our minds about the Old Testament exodus out of Egypt into the land of Canaan. Right? That was the redemption of the Old Testament, the exodus account. So remember, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt to this cruel and wicked king named Pharaoh, who was king of Egypt. And God promised to redeem His people out of that oppressive land and bring them into a land of freedom and prosperity and blessedness. Let me just read one passage which tells us this very clearly. Exodus 6, verses 6 through 8. Moses is commanded by God to say this to the people of Israel. 
I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. It's a good summary statement of what it means to be redeemed and all the blessings and benefits of being redeemed. The Lord really points out here in this passage. But it's a sad thing that though the Israelites were at least physically redeemed from physical slavery in Egypt, what did they do? They sinned horribly against their God. God redeemed them, cut off the chains from on them, led them into a beautiful, wonderful land. And what did they do with all those things? They rebelled. They transgressed God's law. They were disobedient. They were rebellious. In fact, they wanted to go back to Egypt and put the chains back upon their hands. They worshipped and served other gods. And of course, God had to finally send them away into exile to be enslaved by another king, King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Praise God, he didn't completely turn his back on his people. He could have in his justice and righteousness, but he made certain promises to them. And as we read through the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, we read promise after promise that he's going to bring about a greater redemption to come. So much greater than the Exodus redemption that they would forget about that redemption because this one would be so magnificent. Of course, we know as we read our New Testaments and as what the Apostle Paul says in this verse, Jesus is the one who is the fulfillment of those promises. Jesus is the one who has come to redeem Israel. He is the one who came to redeem his people. So that's redemption. Think of slavery. Think of, of, of having your chains broken off and being brought into liberation and freedom. But the second question is this, what did Christ redeem us from? He is the Redeemer, but what did he redeem us from? Paul says that Christ died for us in order to redeem us or set us free from all lawlessness. And it's not from physical enemies. It's not from physical slavery. It's not from hard and difficult times. But Paul says here, from all lawlessness. And not lawlessness done to us, but lawlessness done by us. <laughs> This is our lawlessness, all our lawlessness, all our lawless thoughts and words and deeds. This is what Christ has come to redeem us from. You might ask yourself the question, what is lawlessness? Well, in essence, it's sin. So the Apostle John understands this exact word lawlessness. He says in 1 John 3, 4 through 5, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared, Christ appeared, in order to take away sins. And in Him there is no sin. So lawlessness, it's sin. It has to do with breaking the commandments of God. Breaking His holy and just law. We know what Jesus said. He said that anyone who sins is a slave of sin. A slave of sin. You commit lawlessness, you become a slave to lawlessness. And brethren, that was all us <laughs> before we were converted, before we were saved. 
by nature, we are all sinners, spiritually enslaved to sin. Think of lawlessness like a cruel taskmaster. His name is Mr. Lawlessness or King Lawlessness. Well, King Lawlessness owns all of us at conception. We are born sinners. We are conceived in sin. We are under His power and His dominion. And the only one who can set us free is Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. You know, the world wants to tell us that real and true liberty comes from just being set free from all kinds of external oppression. Whether it's unfair social structures or despotic governments or a deadbeat husband or lousy kids or an unkind boss or unloving neighbors or a debilitating disease or sickness or disability. You know, the world wants to say that's what you really need to be set free from. Brethren, the Bible tells us that there is a far greater oppressor and enemy than all those things. Lawlessness is our real adversary. Sin is our formidable foe. Rebellion towards God is what we must be delivered from. We must be redeemed from our own sinful selves. We are the true problem. right? The enemy lies deeply within our own hearts. We need the shackles to be broken, not from our hands, but from our hearts. Our wicked and sick hearts are the great obstacle to having a right relationship with God. Slavery to sin is the real bondage all people everywhere find themselves in and need to be freed from. So that's what this verse teaches. The whole Bible teaches us this, but especially this verse. He's, he, he came to redeem us from all lawlessness. Praise God. Paul is saying that lawlessness for the believer in Christ, lawlessness has no control or grasp or legal ownership over all those who are in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, you are no longer sin's possession any longer. Christ has come to fulfill the great promise in Psalm 130 verse 8, which says, And He, the Lord, will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. Christ has appeared to take away all of our sins. Jesus has redeemed us from all lawlessness. Not just a little lawlessness, not just some lawlessness, not just most lawlessness, but Paul says all lawlessness. So brethren, let that sink in. When Romans 6 tells us that sin shall no longer have dominion over you because you are under grace, he means you have been completely freed from sin's tyrannical rule over your heart and soul. That you are not a slave to sin any longer. Sin is not your master. Sin is not some sort of supervisor over you. Sin is not your guardian. Sin is not your manager. Sin is not your parole officer. Sin has been completely deposed in your life. You've been legally and officially and eternally set free from sin's authority and control over you by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how deep and wide the redemption of Jesus Christ is. This is what a great blessing that Jesus has purchased on the cross for us. That we would actually be freed from all lawlessness. Now it's certainly true that we still have remaining sins in our hearts and souls. Right? Sin still fights hard against us every single day of our lives. But this passage is teaching us that sin is not the ruler anymore. 
Sin is not on the throne anymore. Sin is a defeated enemy. Right? He's a mortal, bleeding enemy. His time is running out. He is not in control of our lives anymore. Christ has set us free. He's written the law of God upon our hearts. He has poured out the Spirit of God within us. He has enthroned Himself in us. Sin has been deposed once and for all. So brethren, look forward to the day when sin will be no more. And continue to trust in your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will continually put to death sin within your mortal flesh. But also, what sort of lives should we live as we meditate upon the great work of redemption Christ has done for us? Well, you should live as free men and free women in the Lord, never wanting to be enslaved by anything else ever again. You should live as slaves to God now. You should be one who lives not for all lawlessness, but for all lawfulness. That should be the very intention of our lives, that we want to follow and obey the commandments of the Lord because we have been set free from following after our sins. True liberty is found in serving God, not our sins. So we should be one who delights in the law of God day and night. We should be one who doesn't have the book of the law depart from our mouths ever. We should be one who who gladly and willingly give up our lives and commit our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Anywhere and everywhere, in the home, in the workplace, at church, we should be those who live for the one who lived for us and died for us and rose again from the dead. So that's the first purpose. He came to redeem us. But the second purpose is this. He came to purify us. He gave His life to purify us. Paul states that the second reason Christ died for us was to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. In other words, the death of Jesus Christ cleanses our filthy hearts. I want to consider this purpose under four questions. The first is this. What does it mean to purify or to make someone clean. Well, ever since our first parents fell, sinners could not approach the holy and just and good God in worship without being cleansed or purified. So a sinful, filthy person has no right whatsoever to come into the sight and the presence of the holy God. As long as we are defiled, all access to God has been completely removed. We have no access to God as filthy sinners. He won't let us come into His holy house. Would you let somebody come into your house with dirty feet and dirty hands? You got clean carpet and nice furniture? Probably not. You tell them to take a shower first. You might say that to your own kids when they're out playing in the backyard. Well, think about God's holy house. He's not going to let sinners with dirty feet, dirty hands, and dirty hearts to come into His holy house and muddy things up. This is why as you read through the Old Testament, there are so many laws regarding purity and cleanness, especially in the book of Leviticus. You read it over and over and over again, how a sinner can be made clean, at least ceremonially speaking, before God, before he could actually go and worship God at the tabernacle or the temple. Well, pretty much all of these various cleansings and washings came through the shedding of animal blood. Not all of them, but most of them. The book of Hebrews actually tells us that in Hebrews 9.22, when it says, Under the law, almost everything is purified 
with blood. Right? There had to be a substitutionary sacrifice to cleanse the person so that he could be made acceptable before God's holy presence. Well, as we know, the blood of bulls and goats could never cleanse the heart. That blood could never truly bring about the forgiveness of sins. It could, of course, purify somebody ceremonially and outwardly, but the blood of bulls and goats could never cleanse somebody inwardly and morally before the eyes of the holy God. No, there had to be a greater cleansing, a greater purification. And we read that all throughout the Old Testament that God promises not just to cleanse our flesh, but he promises over and over again to cleanse our filthy hearts. Let me read four passages from the prophets which tell us this. Jeremiah 33.8 I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. Ezekiel 36.25 I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Ezekiel 37, verse 23. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And then Zechariah 13, verse 1. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Right? So God provided a way to have them ceremonially clean through the sacrificial system. But all the while God was promising His people that He would cleanse their hearts and their souls from lawlessness, from sin, from idolatry, from defilement. And we find that in these prophecies and in many more. So here in Titus 2.14, when Paul says that Jesus gave himself to purify us, I think he's telling us that Christ is the fulfillment of all of those great and glorious prophecies in the Old Testament talking about a heart cleansing. Christ has come to cleanse us from all the guilt and our sin against God. He has cleansed us from all our uncleannesses and idols and detestable things. This is the work of Jesus Christ. You may ask yourself the question, how does Christ make us clean? Well, it's not by baptizing us. As wonderful as baptism is, it doesn't wash away the filth and the defilement and the sin within our hearts. Christ didn't come to just make animal sacrifices and cleanse us with that sort of blood. But Paul tells us here in verse 14 how Christ came to cleanse us. It was by giving himself over for us on the cross. Christ cleanses us with his precious blood. Because we need that inward cleansing. We need a spiritual bath. We need the washing of our hearts. We need the purification of our souls. Right? Think of your heart like a rat hole. And that rat hole needs to be the rats need to be driven away and that thing needs to be cleansed for the great King of glory to come and reside within us. So what can wash away our sins? We know the answer to that. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let me just read one verse that tells us this very clearly. 1 John 1.7 The blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. 
So Christ purifies us from all defilement and sin by washing us with his precious and powerful blood. His death, he died for the very purpose to purify us, to cleanse us, to make us acceptable in the sight of a holy God. But third, why does Christ make us clean? Well, Paul says that he purifies us for himself. You see that there? For himself. Now, I think what Paul means is Christ purifies us for his own benefit or for his own advantage or for his own service. This was for him. Well, Christ didn't come and redeem us and purify us for our glory. He does it for his own glory. The only reason we are Christians is because the grace and the mercy of the Lord. We're saved by the Lord for the Lord. We're saved from slavery to sin in order to become slaves to Him. So it's for Him. That's why we're saved. That's the only reason any of us can say that we're Christians and we have the hope of eternal glory. It's because of Him. It's for Him. We're gifts to Him. And praise God, He doesn't take us and throw us away. And He doesn't take us and restore us and then sell us off to the highest bidder. It's not as if Christ owns some restoration shop and He takes a, a, a dirty you know, piece of junk like ourselves and, and, and makes us new in order to sell us off and make profit. No, that's not what Christ does. Because Paul goes on. He tells us that He purifies for Himself a people for His own possession. Or a people who are His prized treasure. In other words, He saves us in order to make us His own. So he doesn't save us to throw us away. He doesn't save us to sell us off. He saves us so that He can keep us. That we can be His prized treasure. Now this was said of the Old Testament people of God. They were God's special, chosen, treasured possession out of all the peoples of the earth. He saved them. He redeemed them from Egypt so that He would be their God and they would be His people. But again, they were an unfaithful people. They turned and whored after many, many gods and God eventually had to divorce them and send them away. They, they were an adulterous bride. He had to scatter them throughout the nations because they had sinned against Him over and over and over again and never repented. Well, brethren, Jesus has come to make sure that will never happen again to the people of God. Jesus frees us and cleanses us from sin so that He can keep us forever. By the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we become His chosen, special possession. We become His own people. We become united with Him. We become one with Him. We commune and have fellowship with Him. We are His church. We are His bride. We are His friends. We are His family. We are bone of His bone and flesh of his flesh. We are trophies of his grace. Right, saved for himself so that he might show us off to the universe as trophies of his grace, of what he can do in the lives of sinners. No one can steal us away from him. He's forever imprinted upon our hearts and souls the phrase belonging to Jesus Christ. Created in the image of God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That is what's written upon our hearts and our souls. Nobody can wipe that off. We'll never slip through His hands. We'll never fall out of His pocket. He will hold on to us to the very end. 
Well, fourth and finally, what is the result of Christ cleansing us? Paul says that one of the characteristics of the people redeemed and cleansed by the blood of Christ is that they are zealous for good works. Now, being zealous here literally means to boil over with passion for something. Just think you have a pot on your stove and you leave it on for too long and it begins to boil over. Well, that's what this word zealous means. He literally says zealot. He uses a noun here. They're zealots of good works. But they boil over with passion for something. So this has to do with the feelings, the emotions, the desires, the, the warmth, the heat, the, the glow, the fire, the drive that's in within, within all of us. But what are we to be boiling over with passion for? Well, it's for good, or you could probably translate it beautiful works. Good or beautiful works. That is what we should be boiling over with passion for. Now, what are good works? Well, they're not a list of man-made rules or traditions. We're never called to be zealous for the traditions of men. That was the sin of the Pharisees, and that was the sin of the Apostle Paul before he was converted. Very zealous for the tradition of men. And yet all these things were against the law of God. Instead, good works are deeds that are done according to the law of God, with a heart purified by faith in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, for the honor and glory of God. Now, brethren, this is what Christ does for His people. Right? This is a great blessing of redemption and purification. Christ makes those who have this inward bent toward evil, those who now have an inward bent toward righteousness. I mean, praise God that Christ doesn't just get rid of all the bad things in our life and that's it. I mean, it's wonderful that He comes and He purifies our heart from all sin and He destroys the idol-making heart within our souls and, and, and He redeems us, he, 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 he liberates us from slavery. But He doesn't just rid, of us, rid us of all bad things, He also puts within us good things. He fills us with good things. He builds a factory within us that produces good works. He gives us a heart of flesh. He puts the law of God within our minds and writes it on our hearts. He gives us a heart to know God and to love God and to serve God. He gives us a heart that is absolutely committed to the Lord. He gives us a heart that is fiercely protective to keep all the commandments of God. He gives us a heart that desires more than anything that the righteous requirement of the law be fulfilled in us. He is the one who by His Spirit makes us zealous for good works. We certainly should be zealous for these things, but let's praise Christ first and foremost for changing us and saving us and giving us that sort of heart that desires it in the very first place. This is all of His work. Well, brethren, what can we take away from all this? Let me just end with three concluding applications. The first is this. Be amazed at the great salvation we have in Jesus Christ. I think sometimes we're not as amazed as we should. As we think about exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. In and of ourselves, brethren, we are hopeless and helpless sinners. As Newton said about himself, I am a great sinner. And remember, he's 82 years old at this point in time. He's been serving the Lord for a long time. 
He's written a lot of great hymns at this point in time, and yet he can still say about himself at 82 years of age, I am a great sinner. Well, brethren, we must say the same thing about ourselves. We are great sinners. In and of ourselves, we are enslaved sinners in need of redemption and defiled sinners in need of cleansing. Yet as Newton also said, Christ is a great Savior. With Him is plentiful redemption. With Him is everlasting salvation. With Him is thorough cleansing of all of our sins. So brethren, may we grow in our amazement of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. May we grow in amazement at the power and the grace of the gospel at work for us and at work in us. May we never get tired of singing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. May that never be dull in our ears. Think about who you were before Christ saved you. And think about the great and vast redemption that He has purchased on your behalf. If anybody here is outside of Christ, don't neglect this great salvation. There's nothing else out there to save you. You're helpless and hopeless just like every other Christian is in this place. And you need Christ. The Bible is clear that Christ alone can save you. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So if you're not a believer here, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Right? You're enslaved to your sins and you're defiled before God. Christ is the only one who can save you. But secondly, let's be stirred. Stirred up to live for the Lord. By understanding the great debt of gratitude we owe to Jesus Christ. Of course, the debt of our sins have been, has been paid once and for all by Christ. But there's still a debt of gratitude that we are required to pay for all eternity to our Lord and Savior. I love the hymn, Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed? by Isaac Watts. I just want to read it to you. And listen to how he starts with praising Christ for the great redemption that he has accomplished. And then he ends by talking about the great debt that he owes to Christ who has saved him. So he says, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I had done he groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin. Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears. Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt mine eyes in tears. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. Brethren, Christ, the mighty maker of heaven and earth, took on human flesh and gave his life for wicked worms like ourselves. That's what we are. And he gave his life on a cursed tree. The king of glory came and humbled himself in such a way that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on that accursed cross. 
Christ came to redeem us. Christ came to set us free. Christ came to purify us. Christ has brought us to himself. So because of this amazing pity and grace unknown and love beyond degree that Isaac Watts is talking about, may we cry out every day of our lives, oh to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. So we should be zealous for good works. We should give ourselves away to Christ every single day. There is a debt of gratitude and love that we owe to our Savior. Not a debt of justice because we cannot pay that at all. Christ paid it all for us. But we should turn around and give our lives away to Christ. Here's the third and last thing I'd like to say. I hope this afternoon we behold the great picture of gospel grace in this upcoming baptism. Now, this is what our own confession says about baptism in chapter 29, paragraph 1. In essence, it's, it, it tells us that the gospel is on display as we all witness what's about to happen here in the waters behind me. It says this, Baptism is an ordinance in the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ. To those it is a sign of their fellowship with Him in His death and resurrection, of their being engrafted into Him, of remission of sins, and of submitting themselves to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in new, newness of life. In essence, it's telling us that what's pictured in the waters of baptism is the union that somebody has with Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of their sins, and the moral purification of their hearts. So think about this. Baptism preaches to us and assures us, if we are believers, that Christ and all His saving benefits are yours. That's what we should see as we watch this baptism. It's proclaiming something to us. It's teaching us something in a non-verbal way. And it's teaching us about the gospel of pure grace. It's telling us if you're a believer in Christ, you are redeemed. Your sins have been forgiven. You have union with Christ. Your heart has been cleansed. The old, defiled, enslaved sinner is dead and forever buried. And a new, purified, freed man has arisen to take its place. Right? As Brian is dunked into the water, it signifies and it preaches to us that his old life is gone, is dead. That defiled sinner is no more. And he comes up as a new man to walk in newness of life. All because of the grace of the gospel. Now, of course, the waters don't redeem or purify anybody. This is not baptismal regeneration. Brian's already been redeemed. He's already been saved. His heart's already been purified. Christ has already done all this for him. But again, the waters proclaim to you and to me, and especially to Brian, his redemption and his purification. So brethren, may we be blessed as we see the gospel on display as our brother is about to be baptized. And hopefully may our brother be even more blessed as he obeys the new covenant ordinance of baptism and experiences in a special way the grace and love of his Savior. Because more than anything, baptism is for him to assure him of all those things. He has been redeemed. His sins have been forgiven. He's been given that new and purified heart. So it's my prayer, and hopefully it's your prayer, that Brian's baptism will help him greatly to be zealous for good works as that means of grace to assure him that he has union with Christ 
and to push him and motivate him further to be devoted to good works. Well, brethren, that's the gospel. Christ has come. He has given his life to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify our dirty and defiled hearts so that he might bring us to himself. Let's praise Christ for this. And let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending him into this world. We are lost without him. We are truly helpless and hopeless sinners without him. Lord, we are in the dark. We are defiled. We are enslaved. And we thank you for our Savior, the great God who has taken on human flesh to be our powerful Savior. We pray that he would be honored and exalted in our hearts and souls. We pray you'd help us more and more to devote ourselves and to be zealous for good works. And we pray for our brother Brian, that this would be a day he remembers forever. That this would be a day where you, Lord Jesus, draw near to him and to assure him that all the benefits of redemption that Christ accomplished on the cross are his, especially these two, redemption and purification. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.